Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to James chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Pray for your spirit to illumine our minds, to give us understanding, to really be convicted about what you have revealed to us in your word, that it might lead to greater obedience and greater worship of you. Help us to be attentive to your word. Help us to be intentional to apply it to our lives. May we not just be hearers, but also doers of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 reads, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Titled this message, Deadly Rich. Deadly Rich. Listen to this description for a TV show. It says this, quote, Whether it's for lust or envy or revenge, the rich do everything differently, even murder. From the producers of American Greed, the CNBC series Deadly Rich, takes viewers inside the lives and deaths of the rich, exposing the dirty little secrets of how big money drives people to the ultimate sin. The ultimate sin, according to them, is murder. Deadly Rich navigates every luxurious twist and scandalous turn that leads us to a killer. Uh, a viewer of the show on Amazon reviewed it with this quote saying, it's remarkable how many rich people who already have it all feel the need to kill someone in order to have even more. This is the essence of the series. So if you're interested in a new TV show to watch, American Greed, CNBC, Deadly Rich. If you want to learn more about how wealth used in a sinful and evil and wicked way can lead to someone else's death and also the judgment that you receive by the Lord Jesus Christ for how you mishandled what was entrusted to you to be a benefit to others. This is happening today as evidenced through this TV series with multiple episodes, multiple seasons. And this was also happening in James's day as well. And a sinful heart is behind it all. We need to ask ourselves, do we have the wrong view of money and do we have the wrong view of wealth? Do we have the wrong view of what God has entrusted to us to use and to have and to be provided for, for his provisions for us? Do we have the wrong view? Are we misusing what God has provided for us? Are we being wise stewards? What kind of lifestyle are we seeking to live? These are important and necessary questions that we must ask ourselves. 
And as Christians, we have God's word to instruct us and to give us the right perspective to have. Chapter 1 in James, chapter 9, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, James writes, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So James has talked about wealth and riches and how it's used and the perspective that we are to have as Christians. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, James speaks to Christians about the sin of showing personal favoritism or partiality and how it can lead to judging others and treating others differently based only upon external appearances, based upon whether they are rich or poor by the way that they're dressed. And he makes a point that it is the rich that are mistreating the poor. And in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? In chapter 4, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, verses 13 through 17, James addresses wealthy Christian merchants or businessmen and speaks about the foolishness of planning presumptuously without regard for God, without regard for their, the brevity of their life. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. James has spoken about money and instructed Christians specifically just within his letter. But here in this passage, James is not directly addressing Christians. Rather, he's addressing the ungodly rich who are misusing their riches and mistreating others. What we have here is the certain and terrible judgment oppressive sinners will face as a result of not being wise stewards with what they were given. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians, we don't need to pay attention to this passage or heed what is being stated here. There are plenty of scriptures that address believers in regard to wealth and how to use it. This is a direct judgment against the unbelieving and ungodly rich, but at the same time, it's an indirect encouragement for believers who were, in this context, being oppressed and mistreated and how they were to continue to be faithful to the Lord and respond in a way that was pleasing to him, despite the oppression, despite the persecution and the suffering they were facing in the hands of the ungodly rich who were using their wealth to oppress the poor Christians within that community of, belie- community of people. And so this is indirectly related, but it's, it's applicable to both Christians and non-Christians. This is a warning to believers as well as they hear the judgment that is coming upon the rich who were misusing their wealth. It it gives a warning to believers in helping them probe their own thoughts and minds and look at their own lives to see how am I using what God has given to me. And also is a comfort to those who are facing the persecution because James will let them know to be patient. To be patient because God will judge them. And their judgment is certain. Their judgment is sure. And so, again, we, we shouldn't be quick to look at them and point the finger, 
But as Christians, we look at this morning passage of the certainty of the judgment coming upon unbelievers, and we're grateful and we're thankful, and we also see our own sinfulness and what we deserve, and therefore we see Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf, and we, we give him thanks and praise that he's taken upon himself all of our sins, that we may not have to go through this condemnation and judgment that these believers, these unbelievers will face from the Lord and how they mishandled what God had given to them. So again, James wants us to grow into Christian maturity. He wants us to walk according to heavenly wisdom. He wants us to think and respond rightly to all of life. He wants us to live out of a biblical perspective, to view everything through the lens of God's eyes, through his revealed scriptures. He wants believers to display and demonstrate a living and active faith that works so that we would grow in holiness for the glory of God, no matter what comes our way. So he repeatedly addresses our hearts. That's where true change happens. Our thoughts change, our hearts change, our behavior change. It's a work of the Spirit of God as we look to his word and depend upon the Spirit to transform us. He repeatedly calls us to re-examine our view of sin throughout this letter, whether we have too low a view of sin. That sin is not just doing what doing the wrong things, but sin is also not doing the right things that we know that we are to do. He's even reminding us, the source of where sin comes from, our very hearts, the lust that grows and craves the things that are sinful, leading to sin in our life. He also repeatedly causes us to re-examine our view of not just sin, but also of obedience, whether we have too low a view of obedience by reminding us that we are not saved by our works, but that we are saved for good works unto the Lord. We are to serve him and do good works for him. James says having the proper understanding of both sin and obedience will put us on the right track to grow in Christian maturity, to be sanctified, to pursue holiness in, in, a God, uh, in a godly way, according to God's word and will. And he does this by grounding and anchoring our understanding, our perspective, and our practice in the character of who God is. That's foundational as Christians, is to know who God is. That will shape our entire lives, and how we view every circumstance that we're in. He drives us to a greater knowledge of God in order to give us a better understanding of ourselves and our need for him, and therefore compelling a greater pursuit of holiness in our lives once we see how great he is and what we truly deserve. James, like his brother Jesus, instructs us to think rightly about money and about all of life. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and out of everything that he chose to put there, wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. In Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus says, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. For, even, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In Mark chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, says, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, Again, Jesus says, and others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. 
These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Why did Jesus and why does James instruct and teach so much about money? Because there is a great danger and there's eternal consequences that come with how people view and use money, and it gives a clear window into our hearts. It gives a clear window into our hearts. Partiality, pride, arrogance, worldliness, envy, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, coveting, strife, a lack of mercy, a lack of humility, a lack of love. That's just to name a few that James has already mentioned. Do we have the wrong view of money and wealth? Do we have the wrong view of money and wealth? The consequences are grave and dangerous. In the context of this passage, James is calling out the evil that was directly impacting true believers within their community. He does this to instruct, again, as well as comfort and remind Christians that justice is coming. Justice is coming. The Lord knows. He is aware, and he will deal rightly with their oppressors. And he doesn't just give a Christian perspective on wealth, but also a Christian perspective on God's judgment of the ungodly, specifically upon the rich, and in this case, wealthy landowners who oppress the poor and live self-centered, indulgent lives for themselves. These are those who acquire their wealth in an ungodly manner, make it the center of their lives, and fail to use it to benefit others, but instead are oppressing the poor, mistreating them for their own greater gain. Proverbs 16, verse 8, Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. In these verses, James announces the impending judgment upon unbelievers who misuse and abuse wealth, so that we, as believers, would think rightly about money and be comforted in the Lord if we're oppressed and mistreated by those who are rich. So in verse 1, we'll see the severe pronouncement the severe pronouncement in verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. This is a severe pronouncement of judgment. Come now is a present active imperative command. This is the same command given in chapter 4, verse 13, where he was addressing believers. He said, Come now, you who say. There, James was addressing Christians, but here he's using this command to specifically address the unbelievers whose impending judgment from the Lord is upon them. It's coming upon them with certainty. Again, this is a severe pronouncement of what is certain to come to them. Within the worship gathering of the people, there were Christians. There were also non-Christians. And he's saying to them, come, now listen, pay attention, and always know this. He's gathering them together to give them this warning, calling them to pay attention, to listen to what he's about to say to know that their judgment is sure. He says, notice that James was willing to speak to unbelievers and also professing believers as if they were not believers because their actions were contradictory to their profession of faith. He wasn't afraid to call them out and to speak directly to them and to their hearts. And in doing so, again, he doesn't just address the unbeliever, he also addresses the believer. These are those who claim to be Christians but were not, and it's clearly seen in their actions and how they're treating the poor and, mis- and oppressing them for their own gain. So this severe pronouncement is for the ungodly, rich landowners, and we see that from verse 4. 
But although this is not the reality for believers, it does provide comfort and encouragement to them and ensures them that those who are exploited, justice is coming. The Lord will be the avenger of wrongs and injustice that they suffered. And so they are to be patient. They are to be patient and continue to respond faithfully to the Lord. We see down in verse 7 where James goes back to directly addressing Christians. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. Because again, verse 4, their cries of prayer have been heard and will be answered. So in addressing the wealthy who are misusing their riches, we also see God's concern for the poor. God's concern for the poor. Notice as well that God is a God of judgment. God is a God of judgment because he is holy. He is righteous. He is just. The imagery of hell is evident in these verses. Verse 1, weep and howl. Verse 1 again, miseries. Verse 3, consume your flesh like fire. Verse 5, your heart is getting fat for the day of slaughter. Why does a life characterized by a love of money and the misuse of riches lead to hell? It's a first commandment issue. You've exchanged worshiping God for worshiping self and money. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he specifically declares you cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. James says, come now, you rich. These are those who are serving wealth and not God. Money is their master. They love and are devoted to riches and they hate and despise God. He then gives an aorist active imperative command, weep, which means weep now with urgency and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. This is a sure pronouncement of judgment upon the ungodly rich. And they should recognize and know it and be weeping and howling in the present for what awaits them in the future. This is not a call to repentance as it was in chapter 4, verse 9, where James wrote there, be miserable and mourn and weep over your sins and be broken and cry within your heart for how wretched you are. This is different. There's no, no comfort in the repentance that they should be seeking, but rather this is a sure pronouncement of judgment upon them. And this is how this phrase, weep and howl, is used in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So to howl is to cry out with a loud voice in great pain and distress. And James is saying to the ungodly rich that they should be screaming in fear and pain and deep anguish for what is going to happen to them. He says, for their miseries which are coming upon them. And miseries describe suffering and distress. And it's only used one other time, and it's used in Romans chapter 3, verse 16, to describe unrepentant sinners. And there it says, destruction and misery are in their paths. Their destruction is certain. It's inevitable. It's sure. And James is letting them know that their judgment is as certain as the return of the Lord. Their judgment is as certain as the return of the Lord. The Lord is coming. Be patient, brethren. Continue to respond in a godly way. But the Lord is coming and he will judge. Verse 7 again, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. 
Christ is coming and he's coming to judge. So we have the condemnation of the unrighteous rich given by this severe pronouncement in verse 1. And now James will explain why these rich people are destined for condemnation and what they should have understood about money and wealth and possessions. In verses 2 and 3, we'll see the sobering realization. This, the sobering realization, verses 2 and 3. He writes, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Riches are temporal. They're temporal. You can't take it with you. Beyond that, for those that are rich and misuse and abuse their wealth, their very riches will be a witness against them, James says. The things that they're holding on to, accumulating, devoting themselves to, will be the very riches that will be a witness against them. So what they loved and were devoted to in the end will prove to be their enemy. This is the sobering realization that James provides for them. What they are selfishly hoarding for themselves and storing up as their earthly treasure will all rot. It will all rust and it will reveal their just condemnation and their sinful hearts. James says, your riches have rotted, meaning that their wealth has perished. It's become corrupted and decayed continues and your garments have become moth-eaten because they are not being used but rather hoarded and kept when they could have been used and given to the poor he continues on your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire meaning that even their gold and silver silver which doesn't rust will be as useless as if they were rusted in the day of judgment it's all going to rot it's all going to rust it's all going to go to waste James had Jesus' words in mind from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus contrasts the temporary, unused, rusty, and moth-eaten treasure with the lasting treasure which is in heaven. Storing up wealth by selfishly hoarding it for oneself is to withhold and prevent the use of it and the service of those goods for those in need, as God would have you to use them. What makes this even worse is not only the temporary nature of what they were storing up and hoarding, but also the fact that their life is a vapor. Their life is a vapor, and they don't know when it will come to an end, as chapter 4, verse 14 states. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And furthermore, James says at the end of verse 3, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. The last days. The last days refers to the period between Christ's first and second comings, meaning that he can return at any moment. Christ can return at any moment and we all must be prepared and ready. And so for the ungodly rich, to be poor stewards of their riches and to hold on to it and to store it up for themselves reveals that they are not living in light of the imminent return of Christ because they are storing up treasure on earth and not in heaven. They are ignoring the very fact that Jesus can come at any moment. And now they are brought face to face with the reality that they will be judged and condemned for their selfish use of temporal goods and for failing to share it with those in need 
and in fact, for even unjustly mistreating others and putting their physical lives in danger, all for their own personal gain, as we'll see in verses 4 through 6. People who hoard wealth are not only demonstrating unbiblical and improper priorities, but they are also depriving others of their very livelihood. Just as those in the first century were in the last days, we too are in the last days today. And so what was written about it in the scriptures is still true for us. Second Peter 3.3 3 says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. This is in the context of judgment in the coming day of the Lord. And this is followed by instructions to believers to continue in holy conduct and godliness, knowing that Christ will return to make everything right. These Christians were being mistreated. This is a comfort to them, knowing that God will judge them and that he's coming to make everything right. But for them, they can take comfort in knowing that God has given them his word to let them know how to live despite the, the, the mistreatment and the oppression that they were facing unjustly. Second Timothy 3, verses 1 through 4. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is a description of unbelievers which here characterizes the ungodly rich, lovers of money. And again, as in Second Peter 3, this is followed by instructions for believers to continue to live holy and godly lives before him. So James, while directly addressing those within the congregation who were, by their actions, living lives consistent with unbelievers, by reminding them that they are in the last days and that Christ will return, it offers hope and comfort to the Christians who are being oppressed and mistreated. It also prompted them to consider how they were viewing and using what they were given. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. The hearts of the ungodly rich are upon their riches. They are facing impending judgment and condemnation. Everything they have and worked for and accumulated, whether justly or unjustly, will all be burned away along with their hearts that have been exposed and laid bare. This is the sober realization. This is the sober realization. Lastly, James will provide the evidence against them to seal the deal upon the already pronounced verdict. In verses 4 to 6, we will see the serious indictment. The serious indictment. Verses 4 to 6 reads, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. James begins with, Behold. This is another imperative command that James gives to us to see and to look and to recognize the serious indictment against them for their sinful exploitation of the poor to these ungodly rich. He provides the evidence against them. They have defrauded their workers, verse 4. They have a self-indulgent lifestyle, verse 5. 
They, con- they have condemned the righteous. Verse 6. James has already mentioned in chapter 2, verse 13, he said, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. And that is the context of showing favoritism by honoring the rich who are oppressing the poor. They were making themselves judges with evil motives. There was a lack of mercy shown to those in need, and they were not fulfilling the royal law, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These ungodly rich were, are withholding pay from their workers, and so they are not loving their neighbor. And so therefore, they're not loving God first. They're not first loving God. They have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure, and so they are lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Also says in verse 6, they have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and so they have taken the place of God as judge, which James already made clear in chapter 4, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And this brings to mind Leviticus 19, verse 13, which is a passage that James has already referenced back in chapter 2. It says there, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. In your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, it says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. Proverbs 14, verse 31, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. And James says, The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, which is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is an Old Testament phrase for God coming with his angel armies to judge the world. Again, the, the sure judgment that is coming upon the ungodly rich. Malachi 3 verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so here for God to hear the cry of the poor is to say that he will. He will bring judgment upon them. It's certain. Another proof given that makes them worthy of God's judgment and condemnation is the testimony of how they lived their lives, which again gives a reflection of their hearts. Notice what James says in verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. Again, emphasizing where they are storing up their temporary treasures and led a life of wanton pleasure. This is a a self-indulgent, a worldly, an immoral, an ungodly lifestyle. And he, he adds, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. They have lived only to fulfill the desires and cravings of their heart. 
And just as an animal is fattened for the day of slaughter, so too they have fattened their hearts and thus prepared it for their coming day of judgment, their coming day of slaughter. And this is in contrast to what believers are to do in chapter 4, verse 8, which is to purify their hearts, to purify their hearts. Here, unbelievers have fattened their hearts with sin and worldliness, going after riches and wealth, not showing mercy to the poor and those in need, but rather mistreating them, not showing love to their neighbor. Another proof given as an indictment against them is given to us in verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He, referring to the righteous man, does not resist you. And condemned is used in a legal sense, as in a court. So the ungodly rich were using the courts to judicially condemn and pass sentence upon these poor Christians who are being unjustly treated and exploited because the rich were not satisfied with what they had already. Why? Were these Christians violently fighting back and aggressively attacking and opposing them? No, they weren't. They are described as righteous, as those who followed God and lived godly lives and responded in a godly way in attitude and action. And the end of verse 6 makes it clear when it says, He does not resist you. He does not resist you. We just read in Acts chapter 7 about Stephen. They stoned him after falsely accusing him. He didn't resist them. He prayed for their salvation. He asked that God would forgive them. Jesus modeled this as well and taught this. Matthew 5, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. The Apostle Paul taught this as well. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17 in Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21 in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The apostle Peter agrees as well. First Peter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but, to glor- but is to glorify-, glorify God in this name. And James also agrees. He says, the righteous man does not resist. He also spoke to us in chapter 1 of how we are to face the trials that we encounter with joy because we know the Lord is doing something. He's providentially working all things for our good. And as we focus upon him, it allows us to respond in a godly and right way, to think about it rightly. So as these Christians were facing the mistreatment and oppression unjustly from these wealthy landowners, they were to continue to be faithful to the Lord, not resist them, but continue to live godly lives, knowing that the Lord will take care of it. The Lord is coming back. The Lord will judge them. Their judgment is sure. It's coming. So by withholding their wages, not sharing and helping to provide for those in need, and by taking them to court to take what little they did have, they are seeking to take away the livelihood of these poor Christians. Their lives depended upon the pay received for the work that they did in order to support and provide for their already poor families. Without it, they would starve and perhaps go without adequate clothing and the basic necessities of life. They would get paid at the end of each day, 
And that's why we have instruction in the Old Testament that they, they shouldn't withhold the wages that were due to them that day. They depended upon it, upon it. And this is further evidence of their lack of genuine faith. This is why this is addressed through the unbelieving, ungodly, rich. Because James already mentioned in chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing, in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And Jesus confirms this as well in a passage about future judgment upon the unbelieving in Matthew 25, verses 41 to 46. It says there, Then he will also say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and, you did, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment. So by taking away the livelihood of these poor Christians, it says that by doing this, they put them to death. Verse 6, they put them to death. They, in a way, murdered them. James alluded to this in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. The connection between greed and covetousness and murder is now brought to full light here. The suffering caused to the poor by unjustly withholding their wages has caused many of their deaths. This is also mentioned in intertestamental Jewish literature, where it says this external evidence says there, quote, bread is life to the destitute, and to deprive them of it is murder. To rob your neighbor of his livelihood is to kill him, and he who defrauds a worker of his wages sheds blood. This is exactly what was happening. The ungodly rich are those whose riches will condemn them and kill them as well as those who condemn and kill others. Deadly rich. Their greed and their covetousness from their hearts led to them destroying and killing the lives of those who are truly in need. And as we see from this judgment passage upon them, it will lead to their eternal condemnation as well. We see that some people will go to great lengths just to secure a little bit more wealth. They will steal, lie, deceive, take advantage of, and even kill. In 1 Kings chapter 21, there's a story of a king named Ahab. He saw a vineyard next to his palace, and he wanted it. And so he asked the owner, Naboth, for it, and he said no. So King Ahab went away depressed because he couldn't have it. He couldn't have what he wanted. And then his wife came to him, reminded him that he was the king, that he shouldn't be feeling like this, that he should go take it for himself. And so they planned together, his wife Jezebel taking the lead, to get rid of Naboth because of their covetous hearts, and they have him Stone. They have him murdered just to, so he can have his neighbor's vineyard. When he was already the king, he already had plenty. Their sinful hearts explained their wicked and evil actions. This is what James is targeting as he addresses these ungodly rich 
who are misusing and abusing their wealth and mistreating and taking advantage of the poor. He says that their hearts will be the death of them. They're fattening their hearts for the day of slaughter. What their hearts reveal will be the death of them. Their covetousness, their lust for more, their greed, their lack of love, their lack of mercy. And though the righteous do not resist them, God will. God will. The same word used for resist and is used in chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, God is opposed. And that's the same word, resist. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And God is not only opposed and arranged against and standing in the way of the proud, but he will deal with the proud. He will deal with them. As evidenced in this passage, but also in Proverbs 15, verse 25, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And so in chapter 4 of James, verses 13 to 17, we learn that a lack of or a misplacement of trust and dependence upon God and his will leads to greater self-dependence and self-sufficiency and greater sin in our lives, especially since chapter 4, verse 17 says, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. Again, in the context, that sin is of knowing what to do is acknowledging and depending upon the Lord and trusting in him. And James immediately continues, after verse 17 of chapter 4, immediately continues by showing how this is fully manifested in the lives of the ungodly rich and the consequences of it. He's not only condemning the ungodly rich, but also instructing and provoking heart-probing thoughts and questions as well as comforting believers to remain faithful and to continue to live and respond in a godly way. Now, before you say that I'm not that bad, that's not me. This passage doesn't apply to me at all. Is your heart drawn towards worldly riches and comfort? Are you hoarding Are you withholding or being stingy with what you have? Are you spending indulgently and selfishly? Is there a certain lifestyle that you are after or long for? How do you use your money? How do you view wealth? Do you find yourself storing up more for yourself than you give away to the benefit of those in need? Are you content with what you have? Are you thankful in all circumstances? Do you find that your happiness is tied to how much money is in your bank account? Do you respond? How do you respond when mistreated? Do you seek vengeance? Or do you seek to respond rightly to the Lord and leave that to Him? Are you living in light of the imminent return of Christ? Do you know that he can return at any moment? That you are to be prepared and ready? Are you presumptuously planning and assuming that you have unlimited time? That you can have your plans, have your wealth at the same time? Do you think that you can love both God and money? That you can be devoted to both at the same time? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves. 1 Timothy 6, verses 7 through 10 For we have brought nothing into the world, 
so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And down in verses 17 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. James says, misery, judgment, a day of slaughter is coming for those who indulge themselves in riches and who are not merciful towards the poor and those in need. Eternal and true satisfaction and peace and hope will never be found in the things of this world. And it's clear here in this passage, it only leads to ruin. It is only found in knowing Christ. In knowing Christ, the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners, to take upon himself the sins of those who would repent and believe in him and bear the full punishment and wrath of God as their substitute in their place and who rose again from the dead victoriously conquering sin and death so that those who repent and turn from their sins and turn to Christ in trust will be saved and have new life and have eternal life, free from God's condemnation and free from the bondage of sin and self and this world. And therefore, free to live as those who have it all in Christ, for Christ, for the glory of God. We now have a different way of thinking about our wealth. We now have a different way of thinking of the way that God has provided for us and how we can care for those around us. A way to demonstrate Christ-like love. A way to demonstrate humility and compassion. A way to demonstrate true mercy. We are to love God and love his people. Would our hearts be able to sing when I survey the wondrous cross where the, where the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. And my worth is not in what I own. I will not boast in wealth or might. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. The work of God in the life of the believer allows us to worship him, allows us to live lives of obedience in the pursuit of holy living. This is what he desires, and this is what he is doing by indwelling us with his spirit. This is the good that he has intended for his people but we must be obedient to his word. We must know what his word says. We must respond rightly to every circumstance of life. And yes, we know judgment is coming upon those who mistreat us. And as Christians, we know suffering for the sake of Christ is a sure thing. And it's going to happen. It's going to come our way. And this is in the context of the rich doing that to us. But if we just think of the world doing that to believers throughout all of church history, 
the application remains the same. We continue to walk faithfully in the Lord. We continue to obey Him. We continue to trust Him with all things because we know He is good and He is working everything for our good. And so we worship Him. We praise Him. We continue to walk in a way that pleases Him. We continue to give our entire lives, our entire hearts to Him so that our hearts are not divided between this world and serving Him, between the love of money and the love of God. Because this passage makes it very clear. If your life is characterized by a love of money, by an indulgent, self-satisfying, self-giving, self-promoting lifestyle, one that mistreats and tries to have the advantage over others, one that doesn't look to the needs of the poor and meets them, one that doesn't love and have compassion upon the poor, this is the judgment that is coming upon you. But we have the good news of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is good news, that those who turn in faith to him who have all their sins wiped away. They will have no more condemnation and then their hearts will be changed. They will no longer pursue with the same degree and fervor the things of this world, but rather they'll turn and walk a different path in one that's following Christ, in one that's obedient to Christ because they love Christ. And so that's... An exhortation for us as believers, despite this impending judgment passage for unbelievers who misuse their wealth, that we are to continue to be faithful to the Lord no matter what happens and continue to show compassion and love and mercy to those in need. God has given us much. We shall give to others as he has provided for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're just and holy and righteous and that no sin will go unpunished. We thank you that our sins have been fully and completely paid for in Christ. That we have no fear of condemnation. We have no fear of death. We only have joy in the Lord. And we can rejoice in that truth and look forward to that day when you will return to make everything right. And we can live fully and completely apart from sin and death in true worship and fellowship. We look forward to that day. Keep us strengthened in your grace. Uh, during this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.